0: Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by Certified Financial Planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, Nathan Steele is joining me and we are going to talk about financial planning considerations if you are in the scheduling trading business. Uh, So if you make your living by trading commodities, you have some unique things about your financial plan and we want to talk about those this week. With that being said, Nathan, I'll kick it to you and uh, you can give us a quick overview of of what we want to accomplish on this episode.
1: Sure. Thanks, Justin. Uh, Really excited to be on the podcast today. We'll give Jared, a break this week, but uh, looking forward to just bringing two worlds together. Uh, One of my previous uh, roles in the trading and scheduling space. Uh, I'm looking forward to answering some questions that some of our listeners actually contributed to. So uh, like Justin mentioned, uh, they come with unique circumstances in terms of income and taxes, tax situations. Uh, So looking forward to diving in and answering some of the listener
0: questions. I love that, that sounds great. Now to give a little bit of background for our listeners, if you are not in this space, here's a quick uh, 30 second background. Let's say that you are a scheduler or trader of natural gas Um, and you might do this for one of the large oil and gas companies in Houston. The reason why your financial picture is a little bit different than most is a few things. One, you have a very volatile income structure. So if you think about a 10 year period, Based on what commodity markets do, you could have some really unbelievably good years, and then some other years that are just significantly worse. Uh, so the variation, the, the the spectrum of income that you could see over a ten-year window is just way larger uh, than most people. Now that's the first big difference, but that brings a second big difference, and that is, as part of your career, when you have a good year, you are likely going to see a really large bonus. And so we did do a podcast episode recently on financial planning around significant bonuses, and uh, this role is kind of an extreme example of that. Uh, it's it's possible to have six figure bonuses, and it's it's possible to have seven figure, even mid seven figure bonuses. And so you know the income volatility is a, a huge piece but there's also just very different financial planning considerations. If you have a year where you end up making, you know, not just top 1% income, but you might really, really go into the millions of dollars. Um, and so we want to talk about some of those considerations and let's see, with that being said, I think we'll just dive in Nathan and we will, uh, talk through each of these topics.
1: Yeah, perfect. So,
0: uh,
1: I'll just run through some of the questions that that we've crafted with uh, some of the work with uh, our listeners. So uh, one of the questions that we, we've worked through is uh, a lot of these individuals make a really decent, decent living, managing risk, timing markets, and finding mispriced assets. And so I wanted to speak a little bit on why it may be valuable to think about their uh, personal investment portfolio any differently than that.
0: If you've listened to our podcast on investments, you've heard us talk about uh, some of the pillars of how we think about the markets. And so we believe that markets are efficient. Uh, We believe that prices, when you look at the price of a stock or an index, prices are generally correct. Um, And so that would mean that being a passive investor, being a low cost investor that participates in the market over long periods of time. in in hopes of seeing compound interest over decades really needs to be your North star. You need to have a firm conviction uh, within your investment portfolio that, that lends itself toward those things. Nathan, your question is functionally the exact opposite of that, right? And so if you are a trader and you have a really good year, it normally means that you managed risk, you timed the market and you found mispriced assets. Uh, so that is that is really the the opposite of how I just said we should think about investing. Now I want to you know be clear that that we're not at odds at all with with that on the trading scheduling front. Uh, we're talking about two different markets. So if you are engaging in the natural gas market, that is functionally a very different market than being an equity owner of of companies that are all over the globe. So, two very different markets. And to be a prolific natural gas trader, you need to be able to manage risk, find mispriced assets and time things properly. Uh, so, it's two very different markets. Nathan, I think one thought is if your professional career, so if your income is tied to, to mispriced assets, to finding opportunity, um, to having the right timing, then I think there's a lot of, of, you know, merit to the idea that your personal balance sheet should be a little bit different, have a little bit of diversification from that, and and should be a little bit more long term, if you will. But what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think your your last point is one that really sticks in my mind is just the time horizon that uh, a trader might uh, trader or scheduler might work work on, and um, a long term investor may need in their retirement portfolio i think that's a really key component of building long-term wealth uh, and building a plan and being able to stick stick through some of the ups and downs of the market uh, i think is really key
0: i think it also touches on the idea that you need to think about your personal balance sheet in a really in really holistic way um so the example there for retirees is if you're 65, I think it's it's really important if you have a pension and social security to include that in your balance sheet so that you can properly think about how to invest other assets. But now let's talk about, well, if you're 40 years old and your career is producing X amount of income, that needs to be included in some way in when you're thinking about your financial plan. Um, so how you earn income is a big part of your financial picture. Uh, and so along, that, along those lines, yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. If your expertise in the way that you, you know, derive really terrific incomes year in, year out is this specific trading strategy, it makes sense for your personal balance sheet to complement that rather than going all in on that with every dollar in your personal universe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think another key piece that I think about is just the the level of complexity and the differences between trading and investing, and then even financial planning. Uh, at a, a bit more complicated than that, do you want to speak a little bit about the differences there and how an individual might think about? Well, well I can do this myself. Why? Why would? Uh, why would I even think about financial planning in this space?
0: I think it is helpful to think about a, think about wealth management. Maybe if we just use that term, uh, that there's different aspects to wealth management. So one aspect and traditionally what we think of with wealth management is managing investments. So you've got a bucket of money, you hand it to a registered investment advisor, they invest it for you. So traditionally we think of wealth management as investment management, uh, hands on managing a portfolio. Uh, but Nathan, to your point, well, there's a second huge part of wealth management and that is financial planning. And if we get specific, let's, let's break that down. Well, that is understanding your risk management profile and what assets on your balance sheet are protected versus not protected. Are your insurance policies sufficient um, in light of those things? It includes estate planning. Uh, do you have a will? Do you have a trust? If you do have a trust, is it is it funded properly? Are your beneficiaries listed properly? Are there discrepancies on your beneficiary versus your will or your trust? If you have kids from multiple marriages, is that airtight? Uh, a lot of people accidentally disinherit their kids. So insurance, estate planning, tax planning that's a that's a huge part of financial planning. Uh, and you know we take it a step further. And 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 for some of our clients, we do their we include tax return preparation as as part of our services. And so you have a tax return that is done each year that highlights what happened. It reconciles what happened with you and the IRS in the prior year, but tax planning takes it a step further. Tax planning asks the question, what is your lifetime tax rate over the next 10 years? What are you going to pay in taxes? And if we can do A, B, and C, uh, to to lower the next decade's worth of, of tax bills, how can we get that done? Um, how do we locate assets within your balance sheet in the right way to have a higher after-tax return? How do we make decisions with your deductions, with your company benefits, with how your non-retirement assets are, are managed in a way that lowers future tax bills? So tax planning, part of financial planning, retirement planning, you know, figuring out how much do you need to save in order to stop working? Or how much do you need in order to take a different job that doesn't pay as much? And then if you're there, if you've hit that mile marker, well, you you have this bucket of money. How do we maximize the amount of income you're able to take each year from that pool of assets? And how do we do it in such a way that you're not at risk of running out of money a few decades later? And so uh, back to the original question, a lot of people think of wealth management as investment management just managing money, managing a portfolio, picking stocks ETFs or mutual funds or whatever it is but there's a huge second component that is who's doing your tax return um, are there are there planning items within your next 10 years worth of tax returns that are that are being handled uh, it, are your insurance policies properly structured in light of your family balance sheet now and in the future? Are you making progress towards your retirement goal? And then all of those uh, weave in and out in your estate plan and they, they all touch each other. So you can't necessarily do financial planning in a vacuum. And I also think back to wealth management, you can't manage assets in a vacuum. Every investment decision that is made has a tax consequence. Every investment decision that's made over time, it has influence on what your insurance policy should look like, whether your assets are protected or not. So all of those things interact with each other, and uh, the right way to think about wealth management is all of these things are are working in tune with each other. Nathan, anything you would add to that?
1: I think that's a a great point. It's one thing that I've I really appreciated just in the financial planning space is just the number of considerations that are necessary uh, related to. One specific item of investment management or investment management, or um, how am I going to construct a portfolio, or or make these contributions? I think there's so many different considerations that need to be taken into account that um, I, I think it's it's uh, difficult for for any one individual to to keep all of them, keep track of all of them. And so, I think there's tremendous value in in financial planning in that way. We'll go to the next question. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, these individuals do get uh, have the potential for larger bonuses. And so what considerations would you say um, uh, an employee should make when um, receiving a large bonus? I know we spent some time on a previous podcast uh, speaking through some of these items, but maybe just re, uh, revisiting a, a couple of the big ones may be helpful.
0: I think we can start on that point on do you need to make an estimated quarterly tax payment? This is a tricky situation because your HR department, your payroll department probably isn't going to be a whole lot of help in this arena. And so I think it's helpful to, and you know, Nathan, we could say what we would want to do for our clients and and gosh, we've just done this. I just had a conversation with one of our clients who leads up a trading group and uh, had a, had a really tremendous bonus. And so that has a huge impact on his estimated quarterly tax situation. And so we, it's our, it's one of the things that we want to help with is we've got to figure out, okay, what is gross income going to come at this year? So what's that number going to arrive? Uh, Where's that number going to be? And, you know, in, in a few situations with traders that we serve, we also have a really a payout schedule. Um, And so, you know, on the one hand, you could just have a huge bonus in one year. But we see this all the time. It's it's really normal to have a big payout year one and then a smaller payout in subsequent years. And then those smaller payouts in subsequent years, they may happen when the immediate prior year was a boom year. So there's another huge payout in year one of that payout schedule, or it could happen in a lower year where there's not some huge payout. And so what we want to figure out is what is total gross income coming in at, uh, is the person married? does their spouse work? we need to add that income then we need to figure out how much is withholding doing for us uh, both on the you know individuals' tax situation and their spouses. Then we can arrive at okay here's the here's the deficit here's how much you're going to likely owe. And so this is what the estimated quarterly tax payment needs to be and this is how you do it. Uh, I think the other thing to point out there is you know you want to, uh, not just you know, be at the right number for how much are you going to owe in taxes, but you also want to ask the question, how do I at least make sure that I'm in the vicinity so that I avoid tax penalties and interest, interest payments to the IRS? Let's see. I think another consideration would be matching outlier bonuses with your employer benefits. So let's say you're getting a huge bonus. I mean, let's say you're getting a, a $2 million bonus in one year. Well, that's obviously well past the IRS compensation limit for eligible 401k contributions. So you've got to figure out, well, how much should be going into my 401k? Do I need to make contributions during the bonus? How will that affect matching uh, contributions? A huge point on this, um, and we've got a few articles on this for, for different companies, but a huge point on this is if your company, you know, if you're in a role where you're going to blow past the IRS limit, that's Nathan, I think that's 330,000 this year. So, in a good year, trader scheduler is going to, you know, go way past that. Well, if that's your situation, does your company have a supplemental non-qualified benefit to capture the missed 401k contributions and missed 401k company match. And so, I think the, the short way of, of saying all of that is if you've got a big bonus coming, we want to plan with your employer benefits to figure out what should your 401k look like, what should your non-qualified employer plan look like, and make sure that everything's moving in sync together. Anything that we should add to that? No, I think those are great points. I, I think the, the
1: uh, podcast episode on bonus contributions and, and considerations there would be a great resource if anybody wants to learn a little bit more.
0: Yes, I can't remember episode number, but we will link it in the show notes. Um, and you know, the obvious last thing to mention is figuring out how to allocate those, those funds. So, you know, you're going to have a huge tax payment. You're going to withhold a lot and you're probably or maybe will need an estimated payment on top of withholding to pay even more in taxes. So your, your net number is going to be less than the bonus number, but that's still going to be a big number in good years. And so then you've got an allocation decision on your hands and we've got to figure out, uh, okay, where does this need to be allocated? How much of it can go toward fun projects in, in quotations versus how much of it needs to go toward long-term portfolio wealth building and doing some duration matching with with the investments and how they're allocated. But I know we're probably going to get into that topic here in some of the next few questions as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That, that's actually a great segue into, uh, you know, as the an individual may get a large bonus, um, there there may be a variety of investment opportunities available. Uh, I know alternative investments are are some conversations that we have with clients around real estate, around uh, just things outside your typical. Ex- stocks and bonds. And so how would you recommend that a client or individual think through alternative investment opportunities?
0: This is a really, it's a question I love. I love talking about alternative investments. It is a little bit tricky. So I'm going to give you my academic answer, and then I'm going to give you my answer for some of the clients we serve that are traders. The academic answer looks like this. If you're building a personal balance sheet long-term, I think you really need to hit about five million, maybe ten million, um, in investments before you get too strange, before you get too, you know, out there uh, with your alternatives. Now that's really become a textbook answer. Uh, so if you're, you know, if you're working at any, like if you hire a, a wealth management firm, they're they're likely going to give you a similar answer to that. In other words, give you an example most people would say you do not need to go into private equity before you've built 5 million in a more public equity uh, public diversified investment portfolio and a lot of people would even say 10 million and part of that depends so back to the trading answer part of that depends on what your number is for financial freedom and how much you spend So, you know, if someone is really living a a pretty low cost life and they're able to function on, you know, a a pretty reasonable amount, let's say they only need eight or 10,000 a month for the rest of their life. And that would cover every expense in their life. Well, in that case, I mean, you could, you could probably build 3 million in a public diversified portfolio. And then after that, I mean, it's not crazy to think about going into alternatives. Now, Let's see. I want to give my trader answer, but Nathan, maybe it's helpful for giving a little bit of context for why CFPs are so adamant about hitting a certain number in a regular portfolio first. So the reason why uh, most CFPs are so adamant about you know not necessarily doing private credit, private equity, um, viaticals and private real estate deals and all of that until you reach a certain amount is because most alternative investments have a time schedule attached to them where they're very illiquid. So there's typically a pretty stringent time schedule and you can't just call up Fidelity or TD Ameritrade and get your money out within two days in, in private equity. A lot of times it needs to sit there for six, seven years or longer. And so if you're going to allocate major resources to a private investment that is very illiquid, you can't touch it for years, well, your balance sheet needs to be at a pretty high level before you start putting major resources to that. Okay, so the time, it's a massive, massive negative with private investments. The time involved, the illiquidity. Um, the second thing, I would, gosh, Nathan, go back to question number one. Um, you know, I mentioned that public markets are just totally different markets than, than commodity markets. And so in a public market, it's a, it's a, it's a really, you know, it's, it's a market where you assume prices are right. You, it, it makes sense to be a little bit more passive, low cost in nature, uh, because the market is efficient. Um, uh, private markets are far less efficient. So specifically, what am I saying here? Well, your private equity, uh, you know, your operator matters a great deal. So there's a really big difference between a great private equity firm and an okay private equity firm. So one of the key tenets of public markets is that markets are efficient. So a p- more passive, a lower cost portfolio makes sense. I would probably lean toward the opposite with alternative investments. And I, I would actually say, it it makes a lot of sense to pay more for better managers. And the one thing about better managers is they often have high, high minimums. Um, And so, you know, one thing Jared and I have talked a lot about, I think we've maybe said this on the podcast before, but if you're going into private equity, there's a really big difference between, you know, giving an investment to Bain Capital uh, versus maybe a PE fund up in Dallas with a bunch of SMU guys that, you know, just teamed up to start a fund. Um, I would stay away from that one. No offense to Dallas. No offense to SMU at all, but I would go with Bain Capital, even if Bain Capital fees are twice as expensive. Uh, we're not talking about a nearly as efficient market. So expertise matters. Uh, the manager matters a whole lot more. Okay, and those two things are related. So a lot of times, better managers are going to have higher minimums. So if you need to put up five hundred thousand to do this private investment, well, you don't want to do that when your public investments are only at nine hundred thousand or only at two point three million. That would be a really outsized allocation. Back to problem number one in an illiquid manner. If it's locked up for five or six years and it's forty percent of your investable universe. I would stay away from that for the most part. Um, any thoughts, questions on that before I kind of give a more trader-specific answer?
1: No, I'm I'm eager to hear the trader-specific answer.
0: Okay. So I, and we've talked a lot about this, Nathan, uh, I we probably mentioned this in the preview, but if you're listening to this, Nathan came to us after a career in scheduling and trading natural gas. So this is the world that Nathan came from. And so, you know, we talk about this a lot, but the clients that we serve that are that are doing this for a living currently, we are floored at their capacity for doing way more in life than normal people do. Um, so already, this is a very demanding job. You work a ton. Um, it's a very demanding job. And when you're good, the payoff is huge. But what blows us away is the traders that we serve. They have a desire to go run. It's like they want three different careers all at once. And so it's you know we've we've gotten calls where our our clients have gone and bought in a business on top of on top of what they do, or they've you know allocated uh, this different private investment here, here and here. And so there is a huge desire for alternative investments, way more than than you know, clients that do not come from this world. From my experience, that's been the case. And my thought there is maybe you can start tweaking that slightly. So maybe you don't need to fully get to five million before you entertain private investments, but you do need to still understand the illiquidity component and the manager component. And I think this ties into a question we'll talk about. But again, big picture, you do need to move toward having a pretty large, likely bigger than you have now, allocation to public investments. Um, I'm trying to think, what else would you add add into there? Yeah, I think it's a great point. Uh, the
1: academic answer being a, a certain fixed number. Uh, I know we talk sometimes about um, just making sure that the public portfolio side of things is a significant core piece of your, of your financial plan. And do you have any, any more, any more detail on the guidance of, you know, what, what percentage of, of your portfolio should be a core equities and, and fixed income portfolio, or, or how would you think about that?
0: I think the only other thing I would add is the reason I give a different answer for traders is let's say that you're at 1.2 million now, and you want to allocate a little bit to a private investment. I can be somewhat okay with that. If you're planning on being in your role for another five or 10 years, or if there's already, we mentioned that sometimes bonuses aren't just have a good year and 100% paid out the next March. Sometimes bonuses go on multi-year schedules. If we know that you have really substantial bonuses already lined up for the next few years, well, then I think it's okay to, to make an audible and to uh, allocate to private investments a little bit earlier and so I think that's the nuance. That's the difference, you know, where, where traders, I think you could potentially deviate from the textbook answer a whole lot more than, than most of the public. And then there's also the, you know, topic of the, those just bring up a lot of allocation questions in general. And I think some of our next questions might hit on those more.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, maybe our next question we'll take is, um, this can like you mentioned, this can be a demanding career and not necessarily all traders want to do this forever. So how can uh, they think about their financial plan in order to give them more options in the long term?
0: I do think it's really important to have a number nailed down. Um, and so that it's, it's really retirement planning 101 um, is, is two bullet points. And the first one is how much do you need in order to make work optional? So how much do you need to save and invest in order to give yourself the option to quit your job at a moment's notice? And so if you know that answer, then the second bullet point is, okay, if you're there, like, let's say that you decide that you want to retire really early. Let's say that this is a really demanding job and you want to retire at 48. Well, that's a whole lot younger than normal. So you're going to need more assets than most people. You're going to need a lot more assets than someone retiring at 65. If that's your goal, let's say that you need $6 million just to pick a really random number, but we're going to pick six. Well, if you need six, once you get to six, the question becomes, how do we allocate that six in order to derive the greatest income uh, possible each year while also protecting longevity? And so one of the difficulties with that question, Nathan, is a trader almost needs to, again, they've got to have the ability to kind of bifurcate how they think about investments because on a day-to-day basis, it's mispriced assets, it's timing, managing risk. But in your personal portfolio, you've got to get way more long-term. Um, and I can tell you right now, it is a little bit more difficult for our clients who are traders than those who are doing other roles within ONG. And what's difficult is it's it's pretty hard to just get a huge bonus and say, let's put it, let's put it in the market. Let's put it in a diversified portfolio and, and stick it there for decades. But here's the thing. You're not financially free until you do it. Period. You're not going to reach financial freedom until you have that number invested. So if it's sitting in cash, well, no, uh, that's just, that's not financial freedom. And we can get into income planning. And I know we've got some episodes on income planning but you just have a a drastically higher ability to take more annual income and have a far more secure, far more longevity, security related to longevity within that income plan. If it's allocated to a diversified portfolio, rather than sitting in cash, maybe we'll take advantage of high yields. Now we can buy T-bills at 5.1% right now. That's incredible. And it's ultra, ultra low risk to buy T-bills. And 5.1% is a great yield. But that's not, that's not going to solve the much, much bigger problem, much bigger risk to your financial life that is what is inflation going to do to things over the next 30, 40 years. And a diversified portfolio is a much better agent to attack that problem. Nathan, what would you add?
1: I think this is a really fascinating question. It's one that is near and dear to me as I made the career transition out, outside of trading and scheduling. But I think it's just a matter of having having a plan, um, whether it's a long or short term plan. I think both are important. And uh, I think uh, as we talk about the the large annual bonus potential, by all means, uh, enjoy that bonus. Enjoy, be have a plan to spend some of it, but also don't be afraid to stow some of it away for for the longer term plan and and uh, make sure that you you have um, have all the actions in place to to give yourself options in the future.
0: I think you're right, and that kind of hits on I, I think there's a question about volatility and in income, but yeah, you really do need a, a plan and sometimes it's helpful to have an outside perspective um, who's able to say, yes, this is a huge bonus. and And yeah, I, I realize this is a lot of money but also this money needs to be allocated properly long-term because in the, in the grand scope of a 30, 40 year portfolio that produces income that ultimately gives you financial freedom. That's, that's where this has got to go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, we can, we can jump to that question and then finish with taxes. But, uh, I know the income does come with a fair amount of volatility. Like we already spoke about, uh, how can we think about building the financial plan to, Capitalize on those long term or those large income years and manage some of the less profitable years
0: I don't want to you know sign you up to give a a big look into your personal life, but I mean Nathan I think you did this really really well uh, because ultimately you were in this world and you knew you were going to make a career change because when you zoom out and think, hey over the next thirty years i I do want to do something different and so you changed your financial plan. You changed the decisions you make on allocation, on the house that you're going to buy, the cars that you're going to buy, uh, your budget. So everything that goes into a financial plan, you thought about that in light of, hey, well, I'm making this much now, but I do want to make a change. So I think I think that is is really helpful, is figuring out kind of an ethereal, vague question. What do you want in life? What do you want? Do you want to do this job, and do you want to have an ultra high income for the next twenty five years, um, or do you want something different? And as you know, there is not a right or wrong answer to that question. And we we actually have clients in both camps, um, right? I mean, we we serve clients that that really think two different things on that in in the world of being a trader now and in what they where they want to go long term. So I think that's the first thing: figuring out what do you want, how much longer do you want to do this, and if you do something different, is it, is it stopping work for good or is it different work with a different compensation structure? What else would you add?
1: Exactly. I I think, uh, one of the things that I, I would say was really important is just not always assuming that the good years are going to be the default years. And, uh, like you mentioned, uh, Income creep is, is natural as, as you tend to earn more money, your, your expenses tend to grow with it. And that's, that's okay. What you mentioned about having the long-term plan of what, what does my career look like 10, 20 years from now? Do I want to be a trader uh, for the rest of my life? Do I want to uh, sign up for uh, this level of income and and career for that long? Or do I have some shorter term changes coming that I may Want to take a bit more conservative, conservative approach uh, to to make sure that I facilitate those actions, or those uh, those transitions a little a little bit easier and smoother. It comes down to uh, a lot of uh, decisions balancing future future me and and present me. But um, I think it's it's important to have those conversations.
0: Yes, and I I think I'd also add, you know, we talk about this I think in one of our investment allocation episodes, but the biggest dictator in how you invest should be your time frame. And so every investment firm in the country is going to give you a risk tolerance survey. So trying to gauge how do you think about risk? How do you approach risk? How much capacity and appetite do you have for risk? That is that is helpful, it's necessary, but the far, far, far bigger issue is what is your time frame? With every bucket of money in your personal balance sheet, what time frame is attached to it? Because your risk is is one thing, but time frame is the ultimate dictator of how funds should be allocated. Uh, and so, if you're if it's you know a goal of of you or your family is to buy a new home in three years, well, then there needs to be a bucket with that. Du- there needs to be duration matching, as Jared always says. Uh, there needs to be funds allocated with that time frame, And if it's two and a half years away, none of that should be in the stock market. No one has any idea what's going to happen in the next 30 months of the market. The highest paid analyst at Goldman Sachs doesn't know any more than a random, you know, 18 year old in Bangladesh. So duration match rather than guess where markets go in the short term. And then if other pools of money are, Hey, we've, we've already bought the house. We've, we're regularly saving for, you know, kids college and and stuff we wanna do there, the personal budget's looking good. Well then again, duration match. Your bonus probably needs to be allocated toward long-term financial freedom. And uh, the pursuit of that should dictate, okay, this this is what portfolio makes the best sense. Now that can get really tricky because Nathan, it's gonna be super tempting to get a big bonus and think, well, the market's really high right now. What if we're in a bubble? uh, the market crashed a little bit last year and then had this kind of January rebound. So what if I just hold on to the bonus and I can time it properly getting into the market? And that's kind of a whole nother can of worms. I don't know if we want to tackle that now or later.
1: Yeah. That may be a, a time for later over an investment podcast, uh, around some investment philosophy, but
0: yeah, we might need a whole new podcast for that. Uh, <laughs>
1: that could be a long topic. Yeah. But, um, I think one of the the most sought after questions in the, in the, uh, list that we had sent out was just the idea around taxes. I know, uh, as, uh, traders, they typically fall in a high marginal income tax bracket, and there's a variety of strategies out there that, uh, they can use to minimize that taxable income. Can we talk a, a little bit about strategies on how to, how a trader might uh, go about lowering that tax bill?
0: Yes. Okay. In no particular order, I'm just going to rapid fire list a bunch of stuff. First things first, unless you are in a truly awful year with really bad bonuses, almost every 401k contribution really needs to be pre-taxed. Forget about the Roth for now. Roth is really exciting. People love Roths. um, And so they flock to them. And yeah, taxes could easily be higher in the future than they are today. But if you're in the highest marginal tax bracket, I, I'm not going to say 100 of the time because there are people where you've got a weird situation and you are going to have taxable income every year until you're 98. But if that's not you, 98, 99 of you should do pre-tax in your 401k. We can do Roth conversions later. We could build backdoor Roth, right? So there's other ways. There's other parts of of the you know lifetime timeline schedule that we can we can build Roth but for now take the tax deduction let's see Nathan rapid fire hsa that's got to be on there if you have access to an hsa that's really the greatest tax advantaged account in the tax code currently so definitely maximize hsa and do not spend your hsa invest it pay for all your medical expenses out of you know your checking account invest your hsa let it grow tax free so you get a tax deduction for putting money in you invest it it grows tax free um, and then try to keep a spreadsheet. We mentioned this on a different episode. Try to keep a spreadsheet of all health expenses. And then you could wake up 15 years later and take out a tax-free distribution that, that match up with the expenses that you've tracked. Past HSA, you know, we're a little bit limited right now with SALT. That's state and local uh, taxes. You typically get a deduction for any state taxes you pay, any property taxes you pay. Texas has pretty expensive property taxes, but those are capped at 10000 if that changes, there may be some, some different things to think through, but right now that's the law, so we're not going to dive into that. The other itemized deduction point is charitable giving. This is a huge point. Charitable giving, if you give to charity at all, you need to be using a donor, if you're a trader, you need to be using a donor advice fund, and you probably need to bunch charitable contributions. So don't make, don't make charitable contributions every month if your income is going to be really volatile. Uh, over a five, 10 year period, instead, bunch charitable contributions using a donor advice fund in a year that matches a really big bonus, and then you know try to say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my charitable giving for let's say a three four year window, do it all in one year, maximize your deduction in a year that you have super high income, and then you know in other years you there may be difficult uh, environments and you may not have a big bonus. And then you can take the standard deduction in those years. So trying to map out over a five year schedule, trying to bunch your charitable contributions into one or two years to maximize your itemized deduction is really helpful. This is a huge point. Cannot, cannot emphasize this enough. Your brokerage account. If you're, if, 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 you, if this, if you are the audience of who this podcast is for, if you're a trader or scheduler and you know, you've got the volatile income that is sometimes really high, you should not have taxable activity in your brokerage account. So the first point is you're going to have a lot more brokerage assets than most because you're getting paid more and that's going to be a huge part of how you reach financial freedom. It's taking your bonus, which is after tax money and putting it in a brokerage account. So a retirement account is not going to be enough to get you where you want to go. You're going to have big brokerage assets. Those brokerage assets need to avoid taxable activity. And so it needs to be managed in a really delicate way. If you need to rebalance well, do it in your 401k. Do it in your IRA. Do it in your HSA. Do it in your Roth. Rebalance in accounts that don't you know, penalize you for any trading activity.
1: Maybe go through just some examples of that taxable activity. Uh, you already spoke about rebalancing. Maybe anything about uh, asset allocation in a brokerage versus a, a, a qualified account.
0: Okay, so try to avoid mutual funds for the most part um, in a taxable account. Lean toward ETFs. Uh, Mutual funds still have to pay out capital gains and dividends each year that they receive. Um, ETFs, much more tax efficient in that manner. Uh, You know, this is again, I always pick this bear. I always poke this bear and I think, you know, some of our listeners hate it, Uh, but I'm going to poke the bear again. Try to avoid dividend stocks, at least in your brokerage account if you've got to own dividend stocks that pay out these big dividends, if you just have to own them, put them in your IRA. And so again, the typical life plan of a a trader scheduler, even if you do this long-term, at some point, you're not necessarily doing this until you're 75. Um, I don't know if you even know anyone who's who's made it that far. So my point is, if you're going to retire at some point, well, then you're going to have low income years at some point. And uh, you can capture dividends then. You can capture dividends at as, as long term at, at a 0% capital gains tax rate. The other thing is, don't, don't have a whole lot of turnover in your portfolio. So don't trade your portfolio often. Um, if you have a position and it has a big gain and you sell it, well, if that's a short term capital gain, it's taxed at 37% plus net investment income tax. Whereas if you can hold them for long-term gains, it all the all of a sudden it goes down to 20%. But again, take what I just said, and if you're not gonna do this for the rest of your life, if you're going to have years at some point where you're in a lower bracket, you might actually get into the 0% bracket. Um, so if you, if you have to trade something short-term, try to do it with an IRA if you can, because there's a tax shelter there. You're not dinged for buying and selling stuff. And so all of the activity in your brokerage account needs to be very delicately managed. And it really should, one, be delicately managed, but two, it needs to be managed in light of your household allocation. Um, So you've got this ideal allocation. Some of that's implemented in a 401k, some of that's implemented in an IRA, some of it in a Roth IRA, some of it in in a brokerage account. And it's important to match those things to avoid excessive tax, especially in high income years, knowing that those high income years aren't gonna be there forever. Yeah. Great points.
1: What would you say, anything to comment on the use of 529s as another vehicle to reduce tax?
0: Most of our audience is in Texas, so you get no tax benefit at all in the state of Texas because we do not have a state income tax. Um, And I am really thinking so many conflicting things about 529s these days. And I still like them. I'm not against them at all. Um, But I think it's worth considering is it better used just allocating money in a brokerage account that's managed really tax efficiently? A um, whole lot easier to access. But there's also, you know, thanks to the new legislation, there's a lot more flexibility on what you do with 529s long term. So, long story short, if you're in a state with a state income tax, I think it's worth, you know, picking up the 529 state tax deduction. But here's the other thing I'll mention with that kind of similar to Back to a Roth. If you're making really great money, but not, you know, top 0.1% money, backdoor Roth is probably a no-brainer. Um, it's worth doing it. Yeah, do it every year for 10, 20 years. That really compounds on itself. But, you know, if you're if you're just having really excellent years and and your income is in the mid seven figures, well, the return on hassle is just really, really low. And picking up your state tax deduction for 529s is also really low. I bonds, if that's your situation. All, I mean, the return on, on hassle there's really low. Uh, so it's, you know, I, I think that would enter the equation as well. Because I also think family gifting is likely on your horizon. And so, Nathan, I'll try to make this point pretty short and would be interested to hear your thoughts too. But if you're if you're working with a, a really tremendous income and you're likely gonna be in that situation for 10, 20 years. You're going to have a lot more assets than most people. And so at some point, you're going to have an estate tax liability uh, as we, you know, everyone expects the estate tax exemption to come down at some point in the next few years. So the estate tax exemption comes down over time. Your assets continue to compound. That creates an estate tax problem. And so do I really love using up your family gifting allowance, 16000 a year per person on 529s? Maybe, but not forever. I guess what I'm saying is at some point, you're going to zoom out over the next 10 years, there's going to be higher leverage opportunities than higher leverage opportunities in gifting to your children than just 529 contributions. So I think it's important to think about that.
1: Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, great point. Uh, as we close up the questions, uh, I, I really appreciate all the feedback and all the answers. Uh, hopefully the listeners enjoyed it.
0: Absolutely, and Nathan, any other final like if we summarize, like what are the what are the what should you be doing to help your financial situation if if you're a trader scheduler? How would we summarize that?
1: Yeah, I think to me, it's uh, having a long term perspective is a really big deal. Uh, It 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 influences your entire financial plan, not only your investments, uh, and it really gives you yourself yourself a safety net in a role that is fairly volatile in income and and throughout the years. And so I think the long-term perspective is really key. Uh, I think um, just having a plan in general and being able to implement the plan uh, is a really big, big, uh, important uh, point as well. A lot of these individuals are very busy and I think um, life, life goes on. And so in order for uh, these things to take place, the plan has to be in place and there has to uh, be Some continual uh, conversations and and opportunities to revisit the plan to make sure everything's on track. Anything else you would add?
0: I think that's a really good point, long-term plan. I think I would add some of the logistical things with estimated quarterly tax payments, matching it with withholding, and then thinking through employer benefits along those lines as well. That's certainly something that's important to us. And yeah, I mean, Nathan, I think that's just that's a huge reason why we. include tax returns as as part of some of our services, uh, depending on on what level you're at, just because, yeah, that's that's a really big deal. There needs to be a lot of communication uh, between your tax return and your financial plan on on an ongoing basis. And then, yeah, with that long-term plan, there should be, once your income gets to a certain level and then once assets get to a certain level, there is usually just really, really huge benefits of good tax planning. And, you know, once you reach those levels, good tax planning can be six figure savings over, over a few years window. And I mean, it can be seven figure savings over one or two decades. And so it's just, it's really critical to not miss on on those things. And to your point, you know, it's a really busy profession. If you're a trader or scheduler, you've got a lot going on. And a great long-term financial plan has about 50, 60 different moving parts. Some of them are simple. Uh, I mean, you know, Nathan, I don't think most of what we do is rocket science or anything, but there's a whole lot of moving parts. And so you just want to make sure that you have your pulse on making great decisions in those 50, 60 areas consistently over a long, long period of time.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Awesome. Well, I think that about wraps it up. Great chatting with you, Nathan, and we will see you next time.
1: Thanks for listening
0: to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice.
1: If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.